My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Economic Narrative The Roads Less Imagined. When I started mapping out the episodes for this season, I had a grand idea. What would it take to build a new city from the ground up? Unsurprisingly, I soon discovered how much I did not understand about infrastructure. Instead of giving up, I decided to break down the key components, and in doing so, have discovered that our entire system is literally based on one person convincing a group of leaders that an idea will work. Not a plan, mind you, because a plan requires data, and you need an idea before you know what data to look for in order to support the plan. I have to admit, I've had a headache most of this week because I am slowly realizing just how much of my life experience has been influenced by someone else's storytelling. Today, Mr. Mark Young returns. He was the guest on episode two, The Gentrifying Hope Conversation. I wanted to bring him back to talk about his book, How to Fix the Future Using Cooperative Economics. It is an elegant primer about how our economic system is an economic narrative and how we can think about creating a narrative that works for everyone. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Mr. Mark Young. Mr. Mark Young, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Jason, how you doing? It's good to be back. I am well, and I am excited because we are going to talk about your book. And could you give the complete title of it? Uh, the title of the book is, is How to Fix the Future Using Cooperative Economics. Okay. So then my first question is, how did you come up upon this subject matter? Well, the issue is uh, it's a, it's a, a dated story, actually. When I was in um, graduate school, I was studying urban planning in my minor was economics, and um, I happened to be in a macroeconomics class, which if you don't know, macroeconomics is a study of global forces in economics instead of microeconomics, which looks at uh, individual business. And we were talking about um, how the Fed operates and how it raises interest rates and lowers interest rates and how it controls the economy um, with its indicators. And we were talking about inflation one day, and uh, the, the, he had us read read something out of a book. But the basic premise of the, the the thing we read was is that if the unemployment rate gets too low, the Fed raises the interest rate so that companies will stop hiring or expanding and hiring new people. And I said, so unemployment is on purpose. And the professor was like, well, yeah, in a sense it is. And I and my, I came back and I said, well, if it's, you know, three or four or five percent employment out of a workforce of, a, you know, 100, 150 million, I said, that's millions of people. And he said, yeah, you're, you're right. And that little thing just 
sparked my interest in macroeconomics and, and economics in general. And from there, I went on to do a lot more reading about the Fed and and how it operates and, and starting to understand how our entire money system operates all over the whole globe. This was just a totally new subject matter to me. I knew nothing about it. Um, and then from there, I actually tried to do my thesis on um, a, a monetary system and how it could affect a different monetary system and how it could affect the United States. Now, they didn't let me do it because, you know, I was 22 years old and they thought I was being way too cocky with trying to redesign the entire global monetary system. So that's that's a whole other story. But that's how I got interested in the subject. So just to be clear, when you say the Fed, because typically mm -hmm. when we talk about the Fed, we're talking about the FBI. Oh, most people, <laughs> enough, most people think, yeah. So, they, so when you say the Fed, what do you mean again? I mean the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was established in 1913 by the Federal Reserve Act, which basically turned over the nation's power to create money itself over to a, a group of banks who then manage the money supply. And so it, it's, it's really what set up our central banking system and what operates today. Okay. <laughs> I know. I, was I like... didn't think about the Fed part. You're right. The <laughs> Federal Reserve. There we go. Central Bank. So then how would this idea of cooperative economics differ from, differ from our current system? Well, you know, cooperative economics is an African term that came from the term, uh, the Kwanzaa term. Uh, I believe it's Ujamu or Ujumu, one of them, means cooperative economics. And so I took that phrase because the way I've seen it, you can set up a system that works against each other and makes people compete. But under co a cooperative economic system, we work together. And so that, that was the premise behind the, the title and why I said it was cooperative economics. Um, but because money is, is fungible and not it's not real. It's fiat by nature with some other things attached to it. Um, it just seemed to me that there must be a better way to do stuff. Um, and, and fiat just means, you know, created out of thin air for the most part. Okay. So could you give like a practical example of how the system could be used? Yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, the funny thing is a lot of people don't understand how the system now works. So let me, let me do okay. that quickly. Um, so, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, most people think that when they go into a bank and they get a loan, that that bank is loaning out deposits that people have put in that bank. So you put in $20,000 in the bank. I put in 20000 All these other people put in money in the bank, and the bank has millions of dollars of deposits. So when I go in to get money for a home or a business, they're just simply using that deposit. That's not how it works. When you go in to get a mortgage or a business loan, the bank simply keys in an entry under your name, and they create it in an, in an account fashion in a ledger that just says, Jason Graham, you get $150,000, you're going to buy a house, and they wire that to the title company, and that's how you get your house. Now, banks are under some requirements, some reserve requirements, uh, which is called fractional reserve banking, um, but it's not it, – so, for instance, if you had to have 10% reserves, and so if you were – lending out a million dollars, that means you would have to have $100,000 in the bank. So it's not deposits. They're really just basically just saying, we'll create this money. We did our underwriting. He's trustworthy. We'll lend you the money. 
And so based on that premise that banks are just creating money, albeit with some backing and some underwriting, and the government has that power itself um, through Article One, um, Section 8 of the Constitution, where the, the government has the ability to coin money itself, coin meaning to make money, um, then the government can do it themselves. So if you ask that question, it follows up with the next question. Okay, so why do we borrow money? Right. If if you can create money out there in there, what's the purpose of the twenty five trillion, almost thirty trillion dollars in debt we carry? What's the purpose of taxation if the government can create money? And so what really involves is and what what how to fix the future talks about is just a, a different system where you utilize the constitutional rights given to any sovereign country for the benefit of that country and for the benefit of its citizens and for the benefit of, of capitalism, actually, in a lot of ways, um, instead of using it um, as a way to um, create scarcity in money um, and have banks just, just run stuff by profit. Because the, the second premise of the book is that everything that a government does is basically nonprofit, right? If you have a Walmart or Apple, I'm selling a widget and I have a profit on that widget and that's how my business runs. I have revenues, and then I have expenses, and my my um, revenues are over my expenses, so I make a profit. That's not how the government operates because everything they do is not profitable. So if I create a highway, if I'm paying uh, Social Security, even if I'm providing for the military, those are not profitable activities. If a city wants a park, they have to tax because parks aren't profitable. They may charge something for the pool, but trust me, it doesn't pay for it. Um, so the premise behind it of the book really is to look at what, what could another system look like and to just to stimulate people's minds into thinking about, you know, this is really the area that can solve so many of society's ills that have to do with money, whether it's poverty, um, uh, uh, hunger, um, joblessness, um, you know, neighborhood, infrastructure, streets, uh, health care, all the things that we talk about, climate crisis, all those things can basically be solved with money in some way or another. And so a lot of the things that I think we're looking for as, as black people and also um, as Americans and also globally in, in much more underdeveloped countries. Right. I was going to say the, the, globally, the globally poor, like this yeah. is a a system that could solve things for um, the the globally poor. Yes. So if you take a, a country in in Africa or in South America or even in you know Asia, um, some parts of Asia that are very poor um, and have basically been set up to be second class countries, because um, you have your you, everybody's heard of the World Economic Forum with the G7 and G8, the world's biggest economies. Well, all those other people, it's 190-some countries that's at the UN, and you basically have less than 10 that run everything. And the way they run it is based on this the current monetary system because right now money is created as debt. So, so there is no money that exists in society unless there's debt associated with it. So when a bank gives you money, they're also creating a debt. And then on that debt, you pay your principal back and you also pay your interest back. But that's not the way it has to be. But people are so used to it um, that they don't question anymore. And the funny thing is, if you if you read a lot of the stuff about our founding fathers, 
they hated banks. They questioned this. They even had, if you Googled right now quotes about about money, you would see that many of our founders were very much against central banks. And they, and they specifically put in the Constitution that the United States had the right um, to coin its own money. Um, and they gave that away in 1913, and it was, it was a large argument over it. But since that point in time, 100 years later, it's kind of lost itself out of the out of the echo sphere where people even discuss it. So economics seems to be like many things about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so right now we use a system that scarcity is the story that we um, we're using to justify the, the current system of how we're operating. Mm -hmm. How do you think as a philosophy we should redefine the standard of living and work? That's a good question. Um, and and it's, it's not an easy answer, and people won't necessarily agree. And, and in this subject, I think reasonable people can disagree. Um, but to me, I'm not as worried about, a lot of people are worried about the, the billionaire capitalist. Um, for me, what we call monetary reform, which is this, the scope of this subject matter, um, it really involves raising the floor, right, and not necessarily worrying about the ceiling. And so for me, if everybody has a, a, a modern standard of living and they can travel and take care of their kids and, you know, go out to eat and afford clothes and afford transportation and can get a new TV and, and shop and, and everything like that, then, you know, I'm I'm pretty much okay with it. Now, some people are more concerned people at the top and redistributing their wealth. That That's not really my big thing. But there are people out there like that. Um, some people are for a, a universal basic income of giving people, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month, regardless of what they do. Other people um, think a UBI is fine, but they think that a hundred percent job guarantee and a living wage is the first step in that. And maybe there's a UBI for people who are getting trained and have to go back to school and still have to worry about taking care of their kids and. And, and getting a new education and do some new job or, you know, going to some type of trade school that, that may be needed in a future industry. So the subject is the, the question you ask is really, it's really wide open. And it really just depends on how you view society. Um, I've talked to some people who don't think people should ever have to work and that they should just get, you know, a UBI and if they want to just sit around and paint, they should be able to sit around and paint and have housing and have a check coming in every month. I'm not there, but there are people <laughs> in the movement that are there. Um, so it, it's a lot of answers to those questions. I think in any system like this, if once you're redefining the system, it's similar to playing a monopoly game. And if you compare how the rules of monopoly versus the rules of payday versus the rules of life, all these board games, you can really write your own rules to a monetary system. Now there is some economic things that you have to think about, right? Because you, you you can't you can't put so much money into a society that your your productive capacity is is outrun because then you may have inflation, you may have too much money going around. But if you look at even this this country, this country has 160 million is our workforce. A full five percent right now, probably a little higher because the pandemic is unemployed. But every year there's a, another 15% that are underemployed, which means they may have a degree and maybe waiting tables or something um, just to get by. Right. That accounts for about 25 to 30 million people. 
who you have the productive capacity to put more money into the system without worrying about overproducing or worrying about inflation or worrying about anything else like that. And so there's a lot of work that can be done. Um, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that can be done in climate change. You know, you could be putting solar roofs on each home. The, the list just goes on and on and on of what you could do. The thing that I've seen, and, you know, honestly, your book is a great primer for understanding, because that's the first thing you go over in detail is, is the current economic system. Mm-hmm. And you talk about what capitalism is, what socialism is, um, dealing with those things. But for me, the idea of scarcity, I actually don't have a problem with. I have a problem with what we apply it to. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think that scarcity should be applied to like clean air and water. Mm -hmm. And so I have a tough time listening to people argue about scarcity as far as money is concerned, but we're not willing to invest in making sure that everybody has clean air and water because mm-hmm. that's the basis of everything right, right. um go ahead no question about it no i just say no question about it i mean there's but with monetary form you can make those things real um and that's just an example of things that you can do and so there's when i talk about scarcity i'm 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 strictly speaking in the terms of scarcity of money supply Right. There is scarcity across the board in resources and how we apply resources and how we make sure that our, the public is living healthy um, and things like that. And so for me, scarcity is involved in what you see partisan fights on on Capitol Hill, what what people fight over every day. Um, with their, if somebody throws 100 marbles on the ground and um, they send 10 people in there to, to get marbles, and they're not going to come out with 10 each. Right. Some people, and they and they tell you when you leave with that marble, that marble's worth a hundred dollars. Best believe, somebody's not gonna come out with the marble. To me, that's the scarcity I'm talking about. Right. Now, the other thing is, like, if I have a box of marbles in the in the corner that has ten thousand marbles in it, and you tell people that that I'm gonna throw more marbles out there, then people are not gonna fight over it because then it's kind of like, oh, okay, well there are more marbles, there are plenty more marbles. And so basically, what it is is if you if you use a faucet analogy, we cut off the faucet on money. When there's a whole river down the street that's hooked up to the faucet, yeah, and and we do this for a reason. Um, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not saying this is conspiracy because it's on purpose and it's legal. So to me, for conspiracy, you have to be doing something that's illegal. This is not illegal. This is how this is how the U.S. and European countries maintain their hegemony over the world, and how they because under this type of system, your income is your is your revenue and so if the whole if the whole world is based on if our whole money system is based on debt there's a reason why the united states can borrow 30 trillion dollars because we have the largest economy in the world and we have the largest tax base in the world and so if taxes are your income then it's just like if you if you if you're worth if you're making you know a million dollars a year or five hundred thousand dollars a year you can pretty much go buy what you want to buy and the United States is a big economy like that, so it can go borrow money all the time. The problem is, is when you come to underdeveloped countries and they have a very low tax base and very little economic activity, they can't borrow money because it's a debt system. Now, if we were under a different system, they could just simply create the money they needed, and they could base it on their population 
what their productivity needs are, how many schools they need, how many houses they need to build, and they can create the money and fund that in a planned fashion that makes sense. But because they can't, and we're the big guys on the block, I have to now come ball from you who has a lot more money than me to get anything done. And so that's how we maintain control in the world. And so if they do get a loan, guess who that loan came from? It came from the United States or European nation, or it came from the International Monetary Fund that, and basically, I don't know if the International Monetary Fund is a global bank that loans money to um, underdeveloped countries. That money comes from other member nations, larger nations that put money into that fund for a certain return, right? right. So they go get money together and loan it to an underdevelopment country and might say, all right, well, you need to give me 8% interest on this. And while I'm giving you this, I see you need, you need a desalinization plan or you need um, some industry um, that produces wood or, or that helps society in some way or that, that you know, gets at your natural resources that you could sell. I just so happen to have a, a, a huge um, company in the U.S. that's looking to expand internationally. So, hey, I'll talk to them. We'll get you set up. We'll get some of your people employed. But guess where all the wealth is going to go? The wealth is going to go right back <laughs> to the United States. And you'll have some people there who may be making, you know, one buck an hour or something like that. Um, but the country still remain poor because they don't have any ownership in anything. And their tax base really is not increasing that much because they're paying slave wages for the most part. So this is the monetary system is how the whole global order is maintained. Right. And, and, and changing that monetary system to a, what we call a sovereign monetary system where each nation gets to decide how much money it needs actually frees these countries up. Um, even when you hear about, if you've heard about, oh, Zimbabwe was printing money and Venezuela was printing money and they had all this hyperinflation. Uh, they'll talk about uh, Germany after World War One and the Weimar um, inflation crisis. All these things happen, but they didn't happen because they were printing money. They happened because when you go outside of this system, the United States and other European countries will put sanctions on you, and then you can't sell any products. That's why they have hyperinflation, because now they have products they can't sell, people can't buy anything. And so it, there's a strict there's a strict code that, <laughs> that people want you to stay under. Um, and not go outside this monetary system. Um, actually, in the um, the Netherlands over the past year, they actually had a vote in their parliament to change to a sovereign monetary system. Now, it was defeated because all the people in the um, the opposition basically said the economy would collapse. And, and they're right in a sense because they would have gotten international sanctions put on them for going outside the rules of the monetary system. There's also the idea that when countries sign on to to receive the money, they all, there's also a disinvestment in things like education. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that they say is that you can't spend you can't spend money on any infrastructure that we can't control. Right. Um, right. Because so, education is not going to get them their money back. Right. <laughs> That, they want you to spend stuff on profit, like, hey, we can help you mine these natural resources. Now, do you want to loan to mine these natural resources? Because we, we know we can make money out of that. You know, building a school is like, all right, just people getting educated. That's not important to the people with the money. So, yeah, you're right. Speaking of that, um, the second issue, along with scarcity, is greed. Mm -hmm. um, so how should we handle companies that attempt to kill competition and innovation by controlling the market. 
Well, I mean, for me, I think one of the main problems now is that we don't enforce our antitrust laws, right? And so you can go back to the writings of Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto that, that kind of shows the natural path of laissez-faire capitalism. But we already know laissez-faire capitalism won't work. That's why we have regulations. That's why we have antitrust laws. It's just that we don't enforce them anymore. And so I don't want to, you know, because greed is one of those words that, Am I greedy if I make fifty thousand dollars a year and I want to make a hundred thousand dollars a year? I don't. The, the line for greed is a blurry one. You know, if, if I happen to invent a widget that a billion people love, and they're willing to pay me ten dollars a widget, and I get all that money, am I greedy? Well, not necessarily. And so, greed does exist. I think greed, when it comes to the form of where you can hurt people forget it or it doesn't benefit society in, in some type of role, then I think that's the greed that has to be regulated out. And I think I think for the I think for the most part it's regulated in most industries. But once you I think once you got start getting into globalism and, and all these huge world markets, um, it gets very, very hazy on on what people are allowed to do, right? Because if if uh, and this is just this more is microeconomics. If I have a company here that um, makes um, I don't know something. Let's say say fans. I make fans, and I have very strict regulations in the United States on how I make those fans, and the regulations are so strict, and I have to do all this testing that it actually pushes the cost of my fan up by five dollars. Then let's say a company in China makes fans, and they don't have any regulations. Now, half the fans may burn up or whatever, but they can sell them for $5 less than I can. They're going to get that market share because people like cheap prices. And so, in short, I think regulation is good. I think there has to be more regulation. I think there has to be more international regulation. I don't. I would never want to say put a limit on what somebody can make or or, or say you can only make you know five million dollars a year because i just I, you know i'm i'm a i'm kind of a freedom loving american in that way and i want to be able to do what i can do um but i do believe that regulations and the existing laws um are not enforced but when you have somebody like the last administration that wants to gut any type of regulation that puts roadblocks on companies and makes products unhealthy and it makes our water more unhealthy and everything else like that that's a problem and that is greed i mean you're right that is definitely greed but i for me, greed has to be defined as who is it hurting? Does it hurt somebody if you're doing it this way? And if it does, then it needs to be regulated. Okay. So how – so let's say the government, with your fiat system, the government makes its own money, and it decides to invest in a new innovation that maybe – like, for instance, um, Alphabet, which is, which is the parent company to Google. They came up with a motor that ran on hydrocarbons, I think it was, mm -hmm. and it actually put negative, um, it was. It gave a negative carbon footprint, but mm -hmm. the issue was in order to run it, it cost $15 a gallon, mm -hmm. so they weren't able to make it profitable. So let's say the government decided, hey, this is a technology that we need to invest in because it's something that can help reverse the carbon footprint mm -hmm. um and let's say they find a way of of making it profitable mm -hmm. um how 
would your system handle something switching from a government investment to a for-profit business? Well, if, if you talk about my system specifically, I may have a different answer. I think the answer is wide open as far as what works. The, the other thing you have to realize is that in any type of system like this, you have to be cognizant of international pressures, right? And so I think the first thing you'd have to decide, do you want your government in private business? Or is there a separation between um, – is there a separation between for-profit businesses and not-for-profit things that the government does and takes care of? For me, if the government has a significant investment in it, and let's say you need the government to help bring down the cost from $15 a gallon to something reasonable like you know 3 or $4 a gallon, then in my mind – um, the government owns that portion of it, and they make money off of it, and they can turn that back into society. I don't – for me, I don't think the government should invest in private business and just hand that over to a private person. I think okay. I think you have to make a decision and say, look, if this is going to be a public business, then it's a public business. If this is a public utility, it's a public utility. If it's a private business, good luck on your own. Go raise money. Go figure it out for yourself. To me, that's fair because – when I think of these things, I think of them in the context, okay, well, what is China going to do to help its businesses? And is China going to help its businesses get an unfair market share? Because we still have to think about all these markets and how they work together. And right now, one of the reasons that China people get so upset with China and, and says they're doing currency manipulation is because they actually do fund their businesses because they, China is like a 30% owner in most of the industries in this country. That's right. So you can imagine that if 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 your if your government owns thirty percent of your country or your company, and they say, hey, keep the wages low so we can get more market share, it can be very it can be a very unfair business practice to a country like the United States that doesn't do that. Now we'll do it through tax breaks and things like that, and so we'll we'll try to help them on the back end. But to me, I think there needs to be a clear separation between what government is and what business is, because I don't believe myself that governments should compete with each other. I think businesses should compete with each other. Government should be concerned with taking care of the citizens, making sure they have a good standard of living, uh, and managing the economy um, so that you don't have inflation and that everybody's needs are taken care of. I think government should be in a different space. I don't, I don't believe government should compete with each other. I mean, we're all on this human planet. And so let a business compete. You know, let people choose between Walmart and Meyer. You know, let's not, let's not have you know, Russia and China and the United States arguing about which government. I think at some point in time, the money system has pushed that narrative, and the money system can be used to get away from that narrative also. Okay. So um, if people want to know more about cooperative economics, where should they go? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it cooperative economics because that's the word I used in my book. Okay. Um, and I used that because at the time, um, the Internet was not – when I first started writing this book, and I first started coming up with the concepts, the internet was not, you didn't have Google, so you couldn't search on other people and stuff like that. Um, but right now it's called monetary reform. And so you can Google monetary reform for one if you just want to see a bunch of stuff on it. Um, or you could visit, um, myself and my colleagues set up a um, organization, it's a nonprofit organization called um, Monetary Alliance, so Alliance for Just Money. The website is www.monetaryalliance.org. On there, you will find so much information, so many resources, so many papers on it. And I know people, 
If they hear me talking, they're like, oh, that dude's crazy. He don't know what he's talking about. Trust me, there are plenty of economics that have written on this. There are plenty of scholars that have talked about it. There was even actually a night that was what's called the 1930s plan during the Great Depression, what proposes the same thing I'm talking about, and that the government needs to take back its power um, to create money. One interesting tidbit when I was talking about the Federal Reserve, not the Fed, when it was created in 1913, guess what they created right alongside it? Because they knew that once they gave that creation power to the Federal Reserve, we were moving to a debt-based system. And so guess when the federal income tax was created? 1913. Because anytime you have debt, you have to show income, right? And so if I'm going to start borrowing money, well, where are you going to pay it back from? Well, I got all these people's income taxes that I can use to pay back your money, and I can I can raise and lower income taxes as needed. Boom, and then we're good to go. Let's sign the deal. So it's just very curious that income taxes come, come along the same time as the federal reserve. It's not curious. I mean, obviously, it's on purpose. Right. Um, because you have to have income to go get debt. If you go to a bank right now and say, I want to buy a house, they're going to say, where you work at? Where you get your money from? So it's the same thing, same principle, just much larger scale. But yeah, check out our, you can check out our website. Like I said, mon- www.monetaryalliance.org. Um, we always have stuff going on. We have what these things are called coffee houses. We have them once a month where we'll send out notification and we talk about specific subjects. Some uh, are about monetary reform. Um, we publish, we just published a monetary reform anthology, which is a, a bunch of different articles by um, various authors that we published in Spanish uh, because we wanted to, um, to to really tackle into the large Spanish-speaking community. And so we published that probably about four or five months ago. Um, we're starting to do a lot more Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising. Um, so if you're, if you're curious about the subject matter, which I would encourage everyone to be, don't be, don't be scared of economics. Don't be scared of the words. Um, you know, ask questions and just understand that if you're out here marching for stuff and you're out here asking for health care and you are asking for free college and you're out here wondering about what's going to happen to the social security system and and everything else is going on in our uh, underserved neighborhoods and you know, why people don't have jobs and, and African-Americans that need job training or if you're even concerned about, you know, the global health and the environment, all this is in all this is in monetary reform. The solutions to all of that is in monetary reform. Okay, so I'll ask you, you know, the last question that I'm asking every guest this season. So mm-hmm. do you have three more book suggestions? I do. Um, I, one I would suggest is actually a book by um, one of my colleagues. His name is Mark Pash, and he lives in uh, Los Angeles. And he wrote a book uh, a few years ago called um, – creating a 21st century win-win economy. And so his, uh, his book is very optimistic, kind of like, you know, mine's how to fix the future. His is create a 21st century win-win economy. And he has, um, just like I have a system laid out, he has a different one laid out. But he has some great ideas. He doesn't talk in complex terms. It's written for people who, you know, didn't study economics in school and are not interested in quantitative easing and money supply and M2 and M3 and all these other little goofy terms that they use to, to keep people away from the subject matter. Um, I would suggest that as we, if you're interested in, in, in monetary reform um, as a subject matter. Uh, the other one I got, and I only got one more. Okay. Was, and this was just a, <laughs> this is just a comedy relief book. And I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Paul Beatty and his book, The Sellout. No, I'm not. 
Uh, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> it's not it's not a factual book, but it's you don't find too many. At least I don't find too many well written comedies. And I I would I would have thought that this would have been a movie by now, but he writes about this little boy who whose whose father has grown up and his father is a psychiatrist and psychologist, and they grew up in a in a small town uh, outside on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and it's really just about his daily life growing up and the intricacies, and then at some point in the future, he tries to restart slavery in this small town. And it's, really, it's, it's a black guy, but it's a hilarious book. And if, you, if, if anybody's looking for some comic relief, I would definitely, if you don't feel like reading, I would definitely just suggest the audio book because it's, it's, a, it's a great and very, very funny book. Okay. So those, are the two, those are the two I got for you today. Well, Mr. Mark Young, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank, thank you for... Um, you know, exploring the subject matter and, and you know, trying to uh, show your audience what else is out here for them to learn. I want to thank Mr. Young for the time he spent with us today. His book, How to Fix the Future Using Cooperative Economics, is available in print and on audio. We've talked a lot about contracts this season, and that's really it. As human beings, we agree to live together in peace. The contracts, whether a handshake or a signed document, signify a commitment to building relationships that allow all parties to thrive. However, if all parties are not thriving, then wouldn't that be just cause to renegotiate the contract? And isn't the refusal to renegotiate a bad contract grounds to terminate said contract? For more information on how to fix the future using cooperative economics and the Monetary Alliance, go to www.mjgstorycreation.com and click the MJG Show button. If you have enjoyed this episode, share it. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis the Artist. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.